Ringer NBA Show. I'm Chris Vernon. Joining me as he does every Tuesday, which we're recording on a Monday night, actually in the fourth quarter of the Cleveland-Toronto game, which we believe we have made an early call and think it's already been decided. It's Kevin O'Connor from TheRinger.com, a.k.a. Kevin O'Bomber, a.k.a. Kevin O'Conflict, a.k.a. Kevin O'Concert, Kevin O'Comment, Mr. Blow It Up himself. Kevin! Blow it up! Blow it up! Wow. You're not even going to let this game end. They're only down 28. No, you know, you know, Chris, I wrote about it this week, and <laughs> blowing blow it up would be nice, but uh, I think you gotta, you probably got to play out the next two years uh, and just try to build and try to maximize it. Because I don't know if the return's going to be there. Not just to jump straight into it. But. This is not what I signed up for. I did not sign up for Measured Kevin. So if you want to start the show over again, with uh, they should just, they should just leave them all in Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is this that, is this so is na- now. Now you feel that way. One year later, <laughs> now you do. Now you're on my team. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you this. Listen, this one. This is supposed to be your grand slam effort, right? Backs totally against the wall. If you lose, your season's over. And they have laid down, yeah. and so. I mean, that's, that is the most discouraging thing of everything. You know, if you've got a team that scratches and fights and claws and you lose in the end, then there's a, there's a level of pride in that and there's a level of hope in that. But when you lay down like this, yikes. It's like DeMar DeRozan said, his team thrives off of adversity, but that has not happened at all. Has it, Chris? Especially oh. tonight. It's uh, Cleveland, I mean, right out of the gate, really. I mean, they were getting what they wanted. You know, LeBron James is LeBron James, and Kevin Love is, has been stellar the past three games. And Kyle Korver has been fantastic tonight for Cleveland. Uh, just Toronto's effort has just been really dismal. Nice to see uh, $10 million Norman Powell making a, a, oh, a, an appearance. How for about sure, that? yeah. And Bebe also <laughs> made, made had a quick little two-minute stint and went minus 10 over over, over those two minutes. Yeah, rough, rough, pr- rough for Toronto, Chris. Rough. Well, here's the other thing. And uh, all right, let me I, – I will honestly be measured for a moment. Okay. They've run into him early the last two years. Yeah. I believe – it's possible they were the second best team in the Eastern Conference last year. They ran into him before they would have that opportunity to prove that, right? They could have been better than that Boston team. I don't think that that's a crazy argument. And this year, by virtue of the Cavaliers having an underwhelming regular season, they have to run into them a year or around earlier. Right. Like, you know, that this Cleveland team is an Eastern Conference finals opponent. I mean, at least LeBron has been your Eastern Conference opponent every single year. And by virtue of the way the standings have gone, the poor Raptors, like, there is, listen, you can at least when you make the Eastern Conference finals, you can say, we were right there. We were one step away from making the NBA finals, but they've gotten bounced around before that. And the only reason I think they've gotten bounced around before that is because they've run into LeBron around before that. And so I will say that in that in their defense, they clearly cannot beat this guy. So their best chance is to stay away from him. And they haven't been able to stay away from him for two years. Yeah. And that was one of the points made in my article where it's like, 
LeBron has done this to the other teams, right? He he put the Pacers, the Bulls, and the Hawks all into playoff purgatory. And the, the same thing has happened with the Toronto Raptors uh, the past couple of seasons. And it's not Toronto's fault, you know, that they run into LeBron James every year in the playoffs. It's not their fault. Like, they have a good team. Um, but the fact is, is that this was this was the team that was supposed to be good enough to beat a weaker Cleveland roster. And look— Look, they had close game one, right? LeBron hit a miracle shot at, in game three. It, it's not like they got blown out every single game, right? But the fact is, is that they still got swept despite having their best team in franchise history, despite really assembling from top to bottom a really good overall team. But you know what? The difference is, is that DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry still probably haven't been the best player in a playoff series since 2014 when they faced old Kevin Garnett, old Paul Pierce, Joe Johnson, and that Nets team. And they lost that series, too, in seven in the first round back in 2014. I, I don't know what the next move is for Toronto. I, I really don't because well, they, they don't have a, know, lot of, a lot of moves to do. History will tell us, outside of that 2004 Pistons team, one of the five best guys in the league wins the title, right? Exactly. Like that, yep. That's what happens. We, we, we've, so, we've been through that before. We don't agree on how to get that player, but we, we do agree on that. Okay. Yes. So if that's being said <laughs> and you realize your plight is that you don't have that, then you need to do it with a collection of, right? It needs to be some of all parts. And I think that, yes, DeMar and Lowry have not been good enough. I also think that it has been so crucial that they get a third guy. That's what I'm saying. If you don't have the guy, then you need to have three. And they don't have, they 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 went and they spent all that money on Damari Carroll. And he just wasn't the third wheel that panned out for him. Do they have two of the guys though? Do they have two? Yes. They've got two all-star caliber players. They need a third one. Ibaka stinks. He stinks. When I say that, like, I realize like how this sounds. DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry are really good players, but they have really not that been that great in the playoffs. Well, here's what I'm going to tell you, Kev. If you don't have the third peg, then you can, in a playoff series, make life hell for those two. And what I'm telling you is, if they had a third, the same thing's going on with the Blazers. They've got two. You can make it an indictment of Lillard and McCollum if you want. I think it's they two don't have the a same third. position. Two at the same position as well. Right, yeah, both yeah. guards. Yeah, and they don't have a third guy. Who's the third guy that's going to loosen it up for those two? Who's the guy that Who's the guy that can go off for thirty if you know on a, on a random night or twenty six on a random night? They don't have anybody that can no, do that. They don't have that guy, and you know, ideally, you would hope that player is OG Ananobi. Um, but I don't look. Here's the thing: like, I don't think OG would be that guy over the next two years if OG ever becomes that guy at all. He's a great defensive player as a rookie and only 20 years old, already very good defensively. Um, but the offense, realistically, what he's going to be is a good, you know, three-point shooter at spot-up attempts that can attack closeouts and throw down some really spectacular dunks for you. But I don't see him as a creator. No, necessarily. He, that's, he's going to be an outstanding role player, right? A ceiling would be like Iguodala. And, and you'd be happy with that. If for sure, Toronto, but but it wouldn't it wouldn't come in time for this core because Lowry Correct. is Lowry is look the contracts for all these Raptors players are up. You know, some have player options, some have team options, but 2019-20, that's the last season for 
effectively for Lowry, DeRozan, Ibaka, Valanchunas, and, and C.J. Miles. So they're, they're five highest paid players, not including Norman Powell, <laughs> when his contract kicks in next season around $10 million. Their current five highest paid players are up in 2020. And over the next two years, if you're Toronto, what you need to be thinking about is, is it, are we going to be able to maximize these two years? Are we going to be able to add a player that does that does make the difference, whether or not LeBron leaves? Because if LeBron stays, obviously, I don't think you're getting through him. But if he leaves, the Celtics are still going to get better because they're going to get Gordon Hayward, Kyrie Irving back. They have a lot of moves that they can make as well. Then the Sixers should get better as well with Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons growing with all their max cap space and flexibility. Toronto probably isn't going to be a favorite anymore for the next two years. No, so you need to I find just, a way to get better, or maybe you take a couple steps back and think about reloading in 2020, which is a, what we argued about <laughs> passionately last yeah. year. That was the original well, idea for Blow It Up. Well, like I said, I think the whiff is the third guy. They tried to they tried to make it to Mark Carroll. Didn't work. They tried to make it a Baca. I mean, you, you wrote that article and you listed their uh, their salary cap. And I was like, oh, geez. I mean, because next year, you know, and, and no discredit to Valanchunas, who's played as well as he could. Good player. Right? And he had a good game um, tonight, too. Yeah, but I mean, you're talking about $38, $38 million put into Ibaka and Valanchunas? I mean, that is untenable. That was the risk last summer, right? Last summer, I mean, just to refer to the to, to the article last year on The Ringer, which was like, for the, the Raptors are good, but for them to be great, they may need to blow it up, right? The, the article the article we argued about last March, the, the focus of that was if Toronto brings back all these guys, they're going to be locked into that situation. Right now they are. They have about $126 million in guaranteed contracts next season. Like you said, $22 million for Ibaka, $17 for Valanchunas, $8 for CJ Miles, $10 for Norman Powell. They're locked in to that team. And there's not a lot of cap flexibility. They don't have asset flexibility in terms of maybe younger guys to trade. Powell and Ibaka are the killers on that. I mean, just absolute salary cap killers. You know what you could do? But you couldn't blame them for bringing them back, though, right? Like, you couldn't knock them for it, necessarily. If the choice is pay Serge Ibaka $20 million or don't pay him? That was the conversation last year. It's like, do you really want to bring these guys back for this money just to run it back? Like, that was was the conversation last, last March. Do you really want to re-sign these guys? Do you really want to take that monumental risk? And the whole idea of like the, the plan last year was bring it back, see if it works. And guess what? It did. They changed the system. They hit on their rookie and OG and Anobi. Like their young players played exceptionally well. DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry effectively changed within Dwayne Casey's revised system with more threes and more ball movement. It all worked. It's just, it's still not enough. And and that's where it's like, well, shit, man. Now yeah. what do you do? Like, everything worked the way it was supposed to, even better than people could have expected it to. And it's still not you just enough. Say, I mean, and obviously this is up to Masai to figure this out because you never know the way it's all going to play out. You don't. In the end, I would have thought that the Carroll contract was one that you weren't going to be able to get off of. And he got off it. He did. He got off that deal. Now. Can you get off that Ibaka deal? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, and that's the problem, right? They gave up the first round pick to get off the Carroll deal. 
And that's the price. That's going to be the price moving forward. If you want to get off the Sergi Baca deal, if you you want to get off, you know, even Norman Powell for that matter, uh, with four years left on his deal. Well, the problem is the Ibaka one's got forty four million left on it. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, the Carroll thing you didn't have to take on forty four million. You know what I mean? Like, I don't. I don't even know honestly how you could. Carroll had the two years. 29 million total, about close yeah. to $30 million total when they dumped him to the Nets for um, the first round pick. And so he bought yeah. it, like you said. And he was actually 45. pretty good this year, Carol. Oh, yeah. He's still a solid <laughs> player. I, I think, uh, look, I mean, Here's the thing. Even if you dump Ibaka, theoretically, let's say let's say you just dump Ibaka, he vanishes. Like you get a you you get a pick for him. Let's just say you're still over the cap. Like you yeah. still have you still have a lot of money on where you're not going. Well, be that able would to be my thing. How do you get the third guy? You can't. Mm. You can't. Tough spot. You you, you if, really can't. If you were moving one of the stars, Demar's the one, don't you think? I think you get more back for DeMar DeRozan because with Kyle Lowry, we're talking about a 32-year-old point guard that's going to make over $30 million the next two years. Whereas DeMar DeRozan, granted, he's a flawed player. He's younger. Um, I think that works in his favor, and he's probably better overall. But then again, then again, like you can make a strong arg- argument that Lowry's better because Lowry is a really good defensive point guard still, and he's still a better passer than DeMar DeRozan too. Uh, like that, that argument is fairly strong, even though DeRozan's a more dynamic scorer. Uh, DeRozan, granted, he shot the three better this year. He really only shot it better through December. And then after that, he went back to his same old, like, 27, 28% from three. My thing is, and this was our, the argument last year, was I was saying, if the bar is going to be you can't beat LeBron, then I don't know if you just keep on making decisions because of that, Right. We can't beat LeBron, and so it's not good enough, and so we need to right tear it down because it's not good enough. Yeah. Um, uh, that's that's the thing because nobody had this is now eight years, right? That nobody's been able to pull that off, and and the same thing goes on the coaching front. Not only have we picked apart rosters over the years that have lost to LeBron, we have picked apart many a coach that have lost to LeBron, right? And there is part of me that wonders, you know, if you do it every year, if we pick apart these teams and say that they're not good enough and we pick apart these coaches and we say, ah, like, like, do you really think, let's throw aside Brad Stevens, Greg Popovich, Rick Carlisle, whoever you think are the four or five best guys, right? Okay, so the rest of the guys, do you really think that the Raptors' outcome in this series would have been dramatically different with a different coach. Probably not. Uh, I Probably think, not. I, right? I think. I think that also on the flip side, Chris, is the argument. You know, a lot of Raptors fans are like, "Fire Dwayne Casey, fire Dwayne Casey." And it's like, well, sure. You know, you, you can poke holes at his son, some of his decisions when it comes to calling plays or lineups he puts in the game. He's def certainly not a perfect coach. He took until this season to overhaul the system, right? Like it took long enough to start having a team shoot more threes and move the ball. Um, he's certainly a flawed coach, but if you're Toronto, it's like, well, sure, but he's also had a really successful season. Um, what is the alternative? I think if you're Toronto, when you're when you're Masai Ujiri and you're you're that front office and ownership, and you're making that choice, you need to be sure that whoever the the a potential replacement would be is actually an upgrade. Just to clarify, like I do think you know a guy like Nurse, their assistant coach, is you know highly regarded across the league. I think he would be you know a, a realistic choice if they were going to look internally. Well, here's what I'll say: the the Casey thing, 
I think he did a good job this year, but you know the playoffs is where you make your money, right? You are only making your adjustments for the team that you are playing against, and you're seeing them. It's not a one-off game, right? You're not getting to play a Tuesday night in San Antonio or they may be flying from a back-to-back against whatever. I mean, you are now, this is this is the money time for players. It's the money time for coaches. And if you have successive failures, now I'm going to say, if you're going to fire him because he's losing to LeBron, I don't think that's fair. If you're going to fire him because you just think, hey, we need a new voice. If we we can't change the whole roster, right, because of the situation we're in salary cap wise. But maybe we can jolt this roster. You know, at least if we run it back with all the same thing, same roster, same coach, how are we going to expect a different result? And unfortunately, the coach is the easiest thing to change. Sure. That's yeah, what I'd say. Yeah, I think that's, that's incredibly fair. Um, if you're Toronto, it's the type of thing where, you know, you we opened the show. I, I I mentioned how ideally you would blow it. I think I would still blow it up. I would still blow it up. Same argument as last year that, you know, that we went like 40 minutes on. It's still the same thing. I would still blow it up. The thing is, is in order to blow it up, any deal that you would make, have to make has to make sense, right? I don't think there's much of a demand for – 32-year-old point guards set to make $60 million the next year. So many teams already have point guards, and the teams that don't have point guards, they're probably going to try to draft one or sign a younger guy. They're not probably not trading for a 32-year-old guy. Then with DeMar DeRozan, from what I heard last summer, or just from a, a couple of executives, don't like read much into it, but the vibe I get is that there's not a lot of demand for him. Like maybe he's not as highly highly regarded across the league. So perhaps anything you might not get that you might get in return for him isn't worth it. Isn't worth giving up the next two years where guess what? A tweaked ankle opens up the opportunity for you to make it to, to the championship or maybe OG Ananobi suddenly develops into something you don't expect, right? Maybe you get a lucky break and Cleveland gets upset by somebody else in the first round and you have an easier path to the playoffs. I don't I don't think there's a deal realistically out there that would make giving up that chance over the next two years worth it. But if it is, then you do it. Then then you pull the plug on the whole thing because you're setting up for a brighter future in 2020, just like, again, like we argued about last year. It's about putting your team in the best position to, to have success. I just don't know if the deal is out there for them to deal one of their two best players right now. I, I just don't. This, this doesn't seem real, realistic for them. All right. Enough about Toronto because, uh, and I'm sorry to all Raptors fans yeah. who I do love dearly, but this team has embarrassed itself tonight. I mean, they're down by 30-something points, and they are not worthy of any more conversation. Oh, Let's God. flip to the other side, which is Cleveland. <laughs> yeah. Are they better than we thought they were, or is this a function of Toronto embarrassing themselves? I think it's two things. A, they have unlocked Kevin Love. They have completely unlocked him. After game one, when everybody was calling for Ty Lue to start Tristan Thompson, he's like, you know what? Screw that, guys. I'm going to unlock the old Minnesota Kevin Love, calling more plays for him, getting him the ball at the elbow more. He is engaged. He is scoring. He is playmaking. He is doing everything right now for Cleveland. It's Honestly, beautiful to watch. Like, this is what LeBron needed. I have long been on this, uh, that I thought he was the most misused player in the NBA for much of his time in Cleveland. I mean, it, it seemed like so much of the game, he's just standing in the corner, and it's just a waste. He is an outstanding passer, and he is extremely good in the post, which can open it up for everybody else. 
because I and and I couldn't help but think about this. I was watching it tonight, and he sealed the guy tonight, and he did one of his little post moves down low. Right? This isn't something new. When people say Minnesota Kevin Love, I actually went to Kevin Love's draft workout. It is the best draft workout I've ever seen in my life. Um, Draymond Green was pretty close. Uh, but Kevin Loves was the most impressed I've ever been by a basketball player. They ran a drill. The other players that were at the workout were Joey Dorsey, who was the center for the uh, Memphis Tigers uh, uh, national title uh, contending team with Derrick Rose and them, JaVal McGee, DeAndre Jordan, and one other big. Okay? Okay, yeah. So they did this drill where they put Kevin Love at, like, basically you'd get it at the free throw line extended. You catch the ball there. And now you have to make a move and you have to score. And the other guys, it would be like a a rotating line. And so if you score, you get to keep on going. Kevin, I'm telling you, this dude went like, I mean, he went through that line of guys. And these guys were all way bigger than him. And Kevin Love was fat. And he (laughs) went through that line. I mean, 20 times, they couldn't stop him. He's stepping back. I mean, it was like I was watching friggin' Kevin McHale. Then they put him out on the NBA three-point line, and he knocked down 20 of 25. Dude, he's a a killer on offense. I mean, he is so skilled, man, so skilled. And so propping him up in the corner, you know, in that offense, and just LeBron pounding it into the ground, you know, driving or kicking out to somebody every once in a while, kicking it out to him in the corner. You know, I I honestly thought that same thing earlier in this Utah series and how Jay Crowder, some guys just, you know, it's hard. It's hard to play sometimes with LeBron. And guess what? Kevin Love has also stepped up on defense as well. He's had a really good playoff so far overall, especially in the series against the Toronto Raptors. Positionally on switchers, switches against smaller players in terms of communicating and Obviously, he's a great rebounder. Everybody knows that. He's one of the better defensive rebounders in basketball and has been for his entire career, basically. Kevin Love has been good defensively for Cleveland, and th- that's this is exactly what Cleveland needed. I mean, they're still going to probably be complete underdogs in the finals if they make it there against Golden State or Houston just because of the sheer talent on the other side. But the fact is, is that Kevin Love elevating his play on both ends Gives LeBron the partner in crime that he needed because LeBron is going to be the superstar, the transcendent player that he is. But Kevin Love has, has stepped up. George Hill is looking better the past two games, especially tonight. He had that big dunk. If they get contributions from some of those guys with their shortened rotation, putting five sh- or four shooters around LeBron James, who knows, man? Their offense is pretty spectacular right now. Well, pretty dynamic. And he has he had we we talked about the the mythical shirt. The shirts that you make for uh, for great teams, and Kevin <laughs> yeah. Love has at least solidified his shirt name. So it's LeBron and Kevin, and we're still kind of jury's kind of. He's on there anyway. He he's he stopped Steph Curry on a switch in yeah, Game JR's, Seven. He, he, and, he gave LeBron the hug at the end of the game. He's on there. Okay. I don't know. I, I don't know uh, how much talk this has gotten. Obviously, it's all like it all feels like individual LeBron talk, and then. The rest of the guys are bums, and even SNL did yeah, that. Yeah, SNL thing, yeah, yeah. I'm, whatever. Sur- I'm surprised but, they didn't air that one. But here's the thing, yeah. and this happened in the last game of the Indiana series, or really uh, with a couple games like that in the Indiana series. You know what's happened? LeBron's just said, to hell with it. Give me all the old guys. 
And that's what he's done. Coach LeBron? No, it's just like, (laughs) just stop playing all these guys that we acquired. It's me and JR and Kyle and Tristan and Kevin Love. Like, guys, like, these are guys that he's, like, been through some wars with, guys that want to ring with him. And so it's like all these acquisitions outside of George Hill. I mean, none of them have done anything. Yeah, and then Jordan Clarkson had played tonight, uh, but he's not yeah. playing a lot, and Clarkson really, really isn't isn't that great. But um, yeah, they cut Larry Nance out of the rotation. They cut Rodney Hood out, and it's really just a lot of a lot of LeBron's guys plus George Hill for the most part. And you know, speaking of you know playing his guys, Thompson has stepped up. He looks more like the Tristan Thompson that's just a vacuum on the boards, hustling machine, screening, diving to the rim. Again, like they're getting contributions from guys that didn't do much all season long. So I saw my buddy Mike Wallace, who I work with every day, posted. So basically in the East, LeBron ended the Pistons' mid-2000s conference stranglehold, stomped out the Soldier Boys Wizards, uh, went to Miami to clip Boston's big three run, smashed the budding Rose Bulls, smothered PG's upstart Pacers, and ruined the Raptors all in a decade's work. I mean, that is the thing, right? <laughs> is he, if he's the bar, like, I mean, come on, man. On one sense, one sense it's if, like, if LeBron stays in the East, if he stays on Cleveland, that's the bar Boston and Philadelphia have to get over too. Now, we were just talking about how well they've played. I actually think that this was a function of, obviously, you know, the, the, the basketball itself and Kevin Love being unlocked and whatever has been, they have been much better. Cleveland has that being said, I do think it is a large percentage of the Raptors. And I don't think they ever believed they could beat him anyway. Um, And I think it will be radically different in an Eastern conference finals. If it's Boston, which you'd assume it will be. No team has ever lost uh, a series after being up three. Oh, but I think Brad Stevens will be able to take away, you know, I mean, I'm obviously giving him a lot of credit, but I think he'll be able to take away some of the things that Cleveland does really well. And we had a very big sample size of them not being unbelievable. And we had a sample size in that first round where we know Indiana could have gotten them. I mean, they were right there. If Corver doesn't bury some threes in that game four, they got a 3-1 lead and I, I really believe Indiana could have won that series. And so I know our opinions sway drastically in, you know, just a week's time. I'm still kind of stuck on that. I'm still kind of stuck on what I saw of them versus the Pacers. I know LeBron's out of his mind, but they threw a rookie on him, and that's who they were counting on this whole series. I'm not trying to totally shit on the Raptors. But I think Boston will be a totally different story and that that will actually be a very hard series for Cleveland. And you'll and we will. My prediction is we'll hear again. Oh, LeBron's team stinks. You know, he has got nothing around him, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) That's that's what I bet, because I think it's a function of the Raptors. They were a joke this series. I mean, come on. And then this then just getting buried like this in an elimination game. Come on. At least fight. If Boston takes care of business against the Sixers and advances, right? They had they had the number one defense in basketball this season. Whereas Toronto, yes, they had a top five defense, but since mid March, 
they've ranked smack in the middle with a, with a, or before tonight's game, 107 defensive rating since I believe the date was March 18th. Um, they've really been an average team on defense. So Boston, assuming they advance, which we'll see if that happens. Crazier things have happened. Philadelphia is talented. Yeah, they, they'd present a, stiff, a tougher challenge based on the fact that they can defend. All right, we've got to get to who they might be facing because that game just went final as we speak, 128 to 93. That is just an absolute embarrassment. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. 128. I think I'd be by 35 points with their backs against the wall. I mean, that just goes to prove what I thought, right? They didn't think they had a chance. And, and then tonight they just punted, right? They Like once they got down 3-0, and he ripped their hearts out in that last game, in that third game, then this one was just like, forget about it. Or I guess it, no, yeah, ripped their hearts out in that last game. But where he hit the going left and the little bank runner or whatever, that was like, I guess the series just ended then because playing this game out tonight was just a colossal waste of time. We'll talk about the first game, which saw Philadelphia. That's a team with their backs against the wall that did believe that they could win and extend the series and uh, fought in order to make this a longer series where Boston's going to have to uh, play a home game on Wednesday night. If they're going to be able to close, uh, if they're going to be able to close Philly out on Wednesday, they'll, they'll be able to do it at home. We'll talk about that Boston Philly game on the other side after these words. Bringer NBA show brought to you by SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there's a simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every live event. Whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, shopping for your perfect gift, or searching for a last-minute deal to see your favorite team, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. Nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It's by far the easiest way i found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and just with a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually just use SeatGeek to buy tickets to a concert. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports to concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code RINGERNBA today. That's promo code RINGERNBA for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, right seat, right now, right from your phone. All right, Kev, as we mentioned, Sixers won game four, 103 to 92, led by Dario Sarches, 25 points, eight boards, four assists. Um, TJ McConnell, career high, superstar. Yeah, 19 points. And it did kind of feel like uh, the insertion of TJ McConnell into their starting lineup did have a profound effect. On that team, he's obviously big time energy guy. He played extremely well tonight, um, and I, mean, I don't, I, I don't know what kind of odds you could have gotten on TJ McConnell leading them in scoring, but 
He's got the career at 19. Embiid has 15 and 13. Simmons had 19 to go along with 13 boards. Um, Celtics got very, very frustrated. Um, three techs. The very rare Brad Stevens tech. Jalen Brown got a tech. Obviously, uh, Rozier got a tech with his uh, scuffle with Embiid. Um, you know, I look at the box score, and the thing that jumps out to me the most is field goal attempts. They both went to the free throw line at the same time. The Sixers got 94 field goal attempts. The Celtics got 75. The Sixers got 52 points in the paint to the Celtics 30, and they grabbed 16 offensive rebounds. Well, it's basic math, Kev. You ain't got to shoot up. Uh, you ain't got to shoot a great percentage if you get to shoot it 19 Ad, more advanced times. Advanced analytics, baby. <laughs> right, this is advanced, advanced analytics. <laughs> here's advanced analytics for you. If I get to shoot it 94 times and you get to shoot it 75 <laughs> times, I got a pretty good chance of beating you as long as I don't shoot a ridiculous... Because, by the way, they still shot like hell from three. What they shoot, like 20-something percent? Yeah, both teams didn't shoot well at all. Yeah. You know why they, they had that difference? Because turnovers. Boston was was very unusually sloppy on the offensive end of the floor in game four, which, again, led to Philadelphia getting a lot more of those shot attempts. That, that, that was really the difference. Just Boston turned the, turned the ball over 15 times to only eight for Philadelphia. T.J. McConnell didn't turn it over once despite p- possessing the ball such a large chunk of the game. He, he, was, he was unbelievable for them, Chris. He really was. Do you was. think that that can have a profound effect on the series going forward, or do you look at this and say this was – a one-off, a team playing in front of their home crowd uh, with their season on the line, and that that is – what do you think? Do you think they're on to something here that could really flip and we look up and they're having to – and Boston's having to play in a game six or a game seven, or is this a one-off in your opinion? Look, TJ McConnell's probably not going to score 19 points again. He's not going to probably shoot nine for 12, but... We did say that about Scary Terry sure, 10 times. Sure, but... but <laughs> we what, kept saying he's not going to score 20 points every night, and then he scored 20 points well, every night. But what McConnell did do, Chris, is that he was getting to the rim, right? He Terry Rozier had a really poor defensive game. He's usually quite good, but he had a hard time keeping in front of TJ McConnell. Maybe it was fatigue, maybe after a long season, the longest in terms of minutes workload, the the heaviest of his career. He had a hard time containing TJ McConnell. And that honestly, I think was what helped get Philadelphia a lot more easier shots in the half court. TJ McConnell getting to the rim at will which is not something, not words I expected to say. T.J. McConnell got to the rim at will and led the Philadelphia 76ers to a Game 4 win. But it's the truth. He opened things up for the rest of that team. And and other guys like Dario Saric, who had struggled thus far in the series, was able to get a lot more higher quality shots um, that led to also him scoring 25 points for Philadelphia. You wonder if the move should have been made earlier. I mean, he obviously bailed on Covington. You were talking about how bad Covington had been. I think it was like games one and three is like over 16. So, I mean, it's like, come on. How many, how many cracks am I going to give it, give to you, kid? I mean, you're giving me nothing, right? And so he just bailed on Covington in that starting lineup. That was a great call by Brett Brown to do that. Yeah. Fantastic. Is it too late, though? That's the question. Probably. Now, are you saying that because Teams up 3-0 are 129-0. No, I'm saying it because it's it's never really over until it's over, right? Like like it 
It's crazy thing. Someone tweeted me the other night, right? They're like, I'm a Raptors fan. How should I be feeling, right? And it's like, well, first of all, you should be feeling like crap. But I mean, there's all, there's all, there's always, there's always a sliver of hope. First of all, <laughs> like there's always. A sl- let, let me just go ahead and establish <laughs> that you should feel like crap. Yeah. And now I'm going to tell you something. Yeah. Life affirming. Yes, because there should always be a sliver of hope. Team teams have come back from down three zero in different sports and hockey. You know, people saw the Flyers do it for Philadelphia fans, right? Boston fans have seen it with the Red Sox. They saw the Patriots come back down 28 to 3. Crazy things that happen in sports. That's what makes sports so exciting, right? That's there's always hope, right? There always has to be. But of course, yeah, that the odds are significantly against Philadelphia have a chance to come back this series because Boston's defense is so great because they are they are so fundamentally sound, right? They they have continuously bounced back from adversity over the course of the season, whether it's Hayward snapping his leg five minutes into the season and then then them winning 16 in a row or Irving getting hurt, et cetera, et cetera. The, the odds are not in favor of Philadelphia, but fans should never feel no hope at all. This is only the beginning for the Sixers. All right, I will be absolutely stunned if Boston doesn't close them out in Game Five. Oh, me too. <laughs> like, despite saying all that, yeah, I'd be, I'd be surprised too. All right, you want to hear the craziest thing? The opening line is Sixers minus one and a half. Like, what the hell? They've been favored in every game. How are they favored in that game at Boston, though? They've like, they were favored in game, games one and two as well, and three. And yeah, four. yeah they're fav- I think the opening <laughs> line, favored. I remember no, seeing been- this on Twitter. The opening line for game three was, I think, nine and a half, and it ended up, I think, at eight. I forget. Yes. I just saw this on Twitter. And They've been favored yeah. in every game. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way, like, they, they should be. I mean, they, they probably should be favored. Maybe not game five, but um, I don't think they should be favored in game five. But um, I, I think it, they got it right for the most part earlier on in the series that they should have been favored. Philadelphia yeah. has a has looked Boston's missing Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving and and even some of their bench guys like Daniel Tice. They're a depleted team. They are. Um, whereas Philadelphia was soaring, just absolutely soaring, uh, closing the, se- the season with 16 straight wins and then taking care of Miami. They're clicking and clicking, man. They're fantastic. And and they're Who still, they still could gives be. Cleveland a harder series. This this is tough. And I I think I would lean towards Boston just because of their defense, right? They have the best defense in basketball and they've also been there before against LeBron James twice in the last two, two, uh, last three seasons, I believe two out of the last three seasons. And there's a lot more history there in terms of ways to defend that core. That's now lacking Kyrie Irving on the Cleveland side. That is, um, whereas Philadelphia, again, it's still their first time here, right? They haven't been on the stage before. And that's they've also the got wings to throw at him, right? They oh, got wings to throw at him. It's a long list of guys on Boston to throw at LeBron James. And and the thing is, is like throwing those guys at LeBron, you still a lot of those guys can still match up against others. So Horford can defend Love, or you can throw him on LeBron if you have to, right? You know, and so on uh, down the line of that roster. Same with Marcus Morris for that matter, too. Yeah, I think that they, uh, I mean, like either of them would have home court advantage in the series. You would pick Cleveland to beat Boston, though, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, yeah. I, I, as I've said, until LeBron loses, I think it's foolishness to bet against him. Yeah, same. But I also think, I do not think that that series would, would end before six or seven games. I think it'd be a long series. I mean, hell, the Pacers took them to seven. Yeah, but you, every, that Boston team's better than the Pacers. They just are. They just sure. are. Yeah. 
They are. Yep. And I'm and and like I said, I think that there was a mental block that went on with this Toronto thing. Now I saw I read the other day Horford playoff record against LeBron is pretty rough too. He, I mean, listen, anybody's playoff record against LeBron's pathetic. Um, so yeah, until he loses, you can't you can't bank against that guy. But I also think that I could see Boston putting the fear of God in them. And again, they've got home court advantage, right? They've got home court advantage. That helps. And so I think that that would be a long series. Obviously, I think LeBron always still has to be the favorite. I mean, it would listen, our boss tweeted out for the world to see how insane it was that he was an underdog in this Toronto series. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't, I still can't believe he was an underdog against Toronto. You know, I, you mentioned the mental block. You know, I've been thinking about that. Sometimes I, I feel like that's like can be almost exaggerated sometimes. But man, like looking back at some of the moments over the course of that Toronto Cleveland series, he owns it, them. Yeah, I know. I know. That's why people call it LeBronto. <laughs> every, every time they started to feel good about themselves, he just, yeah. I mean, he just destroyed him yeah, again. I mean, I mean, I think really the picture of the series was when, when Jonas Valanciunas fell to his knees at the, at the end of the game. I believe game three it was. No, sorry, at the end of game two, right? The end of game two when they, they had a chance to tip the ball in a bunch of times and it, it didn't go in. <laughs> like they just had like four offensive rebounds in the final seconds. Just didn't go in. Game went to overtime. Yeah, that was game one. Sorry, not game two. I'm mixing it all up. Um, he missed Valanchunas 15 layups at the end of that game. Yeah, that was, yeah, that said it all. Brutal. All right, let's get to some of the games that are going to be going on tonight, which are the Houston Rockets and the Utah Jazz. The not over yet? No, it's not over. <laughs> Feels like Exum, they're over. Exum going out was really rough. Like, if they were going to have a crack coming back the other night, Houston – buried them in game three. And I will say I was uh, really, I was really surprised that Utah dropped both of them after winning game two on the road. I figured at worst they'd split in Utah. That crowd was unbelievable. Even down a hundred, they were still like cheering for, for the Jazz. I mean, in, in a lot of cities, that, that place is empty at the end of that game. Instead, they're freaking cheering on David Stockton. I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> have some have some pride. So no offense to David Stockton, but you're down by a thousand. Um, but then the oh, next man. game, they, you know, they had their, I, I will forever Poor believe David this. Stockton. <laughs> in game four, they really had their chances. They had a chance to cut that thing to like six and five and four all the way down the stretch. After they they had made that little run there at the end of the third quarter where I think they were down 14 going into the fourth. And then they were like chipping away, chipping away, kept on grinding. And every time they had like the big swing play, Capella ruined them. It was the best defensive performance I've seen by anybody this playoffs. And I know you've been a longtime Capella guy. Um, as a rim protector in that game and as a guy, they were constantly switching him, getting him to do the switch so that he was going up against a perimeter guy. Ingles couldn't score on the guy. Donovan Mitchell couldn't score on the guy. I mean, he was he was guarding all the perimeter guys step for step. 
And then he was, you know, that back line of that defense and was just protecting that rim like crazy. And so the Jazz, if they were going to have a chance and they were chipping away and they were getting the necessary stops, they couldn't score and they couldn't score because of him. They'd blow past people and he'd just be there swatting it out. He even hit him with the Mutombo finger whack. <laughs> I was like, okay. You see Nakeem Olajuwon in the stands going crazy. Oh, that was, it was fantastic. And like they weren't just you know basic blocks either. I mean, one of them on Mitchell, he reached pretty much across Mitchell's entire body and swatted it away with his left hand. And then on, on Gobert on, on a pick and roll, he swatted him with the right hand, like right at the peak of Gobert's shot. It, it, like every every block was of a different variety, and that, that that's one of the things with blocking shots. It's not just putting your hand up on a layup; it's ability to block at different angles with either hand. And Capella's unbelievable. He he's in the perfect system in Houston for his offense and rim running, and then his defense. He's developed into one hell of a player. Yeah, the crazy thing was, I looked at that box score at the end of the game, and I think they credited him with six blocks. I'm like. I feel like he had 30. No kidding. It felt like, like a lot he, more. It, well, I mean, that's probably the ones he actually, they're giving him credit for getting his hand on. I mean, he altered everything in that game. He was dominant, man. Dominant. Like, he altered so much. And these guys are trying to do up and unders. They're trying to switch hands in midair. And like I said, these guards couldn't even beat him off the dribble. He was just, he was locked in. Locked in, and that's a different deal. When he's like that, when he's locked in like that defensively, that gives them, because I do think they've got, in the fourth quarter, they still, they're usually not going to run you out in the fourth. You, If you can, like I look at it, and we could pay attention to this when they inevitably play the Warriors, you just cannot get buried in quarters one, two, or three. If you can be in a close game against them, going into the fourth, which is exactly what Utah was able to do in game two, then you've got a chance at them because they shoot so many threes. You know, inevitably your legs are going to be tired. You're not going to hit as high a percentage when it comes to the fourth. And they also stop going to the rim as much. And so you've got to really run them off that three-point line or make the contest those. And they're just not going. In fact, there was a one point in the season where their fourth quarter numbers were were not great. And I think that holds true, especially in the playoffs. The problem is most of these teams are buried by the time you get there, right? Like you don't see the 40 to 24th quarter from them. Usually you see the 40 to 21st quarter or the 40 to 22nd or sometimes the third, but it's usually not the fourth. And so if you can just not get buried before you get to the fourth, but that is obviously much easier said than done because they just beat the shit out of everyone. And, you know, yeah, they do. And, and then when Utah did try to make those runs in the fourth quarter, as you said, Capella, you know, he was unbelievable towards the end of the game. He had five blocks in the last two, three minutes of that game. And I think Clint Capella and, you know, the training staff for Houston deserves a lot of credit in improving his conditioning because he's a guy before the season that didn't play a ton of minutes per game. E- even this year, he only played 27 and a half minutes per game. And I remember... Mike D'Antoni, I think it was before this season, remarked, he's like, you know, Clint's got to still improve his conditioning so he can handle a heavy workload. He played 37 minutes on Sunday in game four, and he was still blocking everything at the end of the game, still hustling up the floor. You know, conditioning is almost something that's overlooked a lot um, in sports where at the end of those games when you're on your 35th, 36th minute in the playoffs, you still need to be fresh, and Capella looked like he was, and that that certainly – 
certainly uh, is what put a halt to all of Utah's runs. Think there's any chance Utah could get them to have to play a game five in Utah? You mean a game six? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. You say in sports, there's always a chance. I know, Kevin, I mean, I, but I, I don't think so. I think Houston and and Golden State to answer the question for the next teams we're going to talk about. I think they're going to close it out. Okay, with Golden State, and I said this earlier in the series. I think I'd be surprised. I I think I'd be surprised if the Pelicans got wiped out. I actually think they're going to play really well against Golden State. I do. They got destroyed in that last game, but they were four for 29 from three. They're four for 29. So, I mean, obviously it looks terrible and the margin was terrible, but they didn't hit a shot to save their lives. And they got run out, obviously, in their home gym. And I don't know, man. I I kind of think New Orleans, I don't know if they're not going to win the series, I don't think that they're going to lay down like that Raptors team did tonight. By the way, I don't think Utah will either. I don't think either of those two teams. I would be surprised, though their odds are long now, I would not be surprised if both are competitive. But I kind of feel more like the Pelicans. I'm more confident that they're going to be competitive against Golden State. I don't know. Just got a feeling. I'm not. I think the reason why is because Rajon Rondo, the guy who was having his his renaissance in the playoffs, Golden State made him look like a liability in Game Four, and 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 you know he shot only two for ten. Floor floor was collapsed. I mean, Golden State's defense essentially was not defending Rondo. They were collapsing the floor, um, which took away driving lanes, which took away those driving kick opportunities for them. Rondo was critical. This is the thing. And Golden State's had a really good defense for the last couple of years. If you let them set up their half-court defense, they're great. They really are. And how can you do that? Well, how about you don't take the ball out of the basket every damn possession? And I think Golden State only had like three turnovers in the first half of that game. I mean, they were so awesome offensively. And they're moving the ball around and never turning it over. And the Pelicans were just constantly taking the ball out of the net. And they're not going to be able to hang with them like that. And so I kind of feel like, you know, they'll be they'll be a lot better defensively and they'll be they'll be able to be in that game. I still I still think the Pelicans are pretty damn good. I do. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't. Yeah, they are, but but they're going against the Golden State Warriors with Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green. They're starting their their Hampton Five lineup now with Andrea Iguodala in there as well. Golden State is has has elevated their play to another level on both ends of the floor. Like you mentioned, the lack of turnovers in the first half that was that was an issue, you know, over the course of the season and even a little bit in the playoffs with some sloppy passes. Um, but in Game Four, they. They, I mean, it doesn't mean it'll carry over to, to game five, but um, they've been getting progressively better, I do think. All right. If one of the two forced a game six, which do you believe is more likely? And this is actually a totally fair question because both are roughly 12-point underdogs. Utah. Utah. Really? Yeah, I think so. Are you saying that because of all of the gacks in Chris Paul and James Harden's careers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, said, said it another way. <laughs> said it another, another way. There's more variance with the Houston Rockets. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> that, that's the nerdy way to say it. 
<laughs> because they vomited on themselves with uh, <laughs> yeah yeah with with, with, yeah. with closeout games. Yeah, there's there's more variance. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I guess you were. <laughs> Your etiquette's hey, a little it's, better it's than like mine. It's like Chris Paul said. I believe he said it after Game Four. He's like, "I've been, I've been up three one before, right?" That's what he said. Right? I, it doesn't mean it's over. By the way, just to, just to throw this back, you know, to the Boston Philly series. Like, did you see Marcus Morris throwing up the three zero to Joel Embiid when they were talking trash to each other during the game? It's like, dude, being up three nothing doesn't mean anything. It, it really doesn't. The series isn't over. It's not. Get to take it one game at a time. I know that's a sports cliche, but it's really the truth. Yeah, but I mean, come on. Embiid's talking crazy to him. I know. Should, why should he have been like 129 and 0? Should, is that what he should have said? 129 and 0? Historically. No, I mean, I, I, I like Embiid. I do. But like, come on, man. Humble yourself a little. There, there's always a first, Chris. There's always a first to do it. Are you serious? Yeah, there is always a first. Oh, my God. It's not going to happen, but it's going to happen eventually. All right. right? Well, bet me on this one. Bet me on this. I'm not betting you because I think Boston's winning Game Five. <laughs> but but what, but you it's but not look, me if, about you're, the if you're a Sixers fan, if you're a Sixers player, you're thinking, okay, win Game Five in Boston. We played them pretty close, you know, in Game Two, right? That yep. means back in Philly for six, home crowd behind us, we could turn this into a Game Seven. That's what you're thinking if you're a player on that team, and it's happened before in in different sports, just not in basketball. <laughs> I'm just saying, dude, like you can never, dude, it's, someday it's going to happen. It might not happen for 30 years, but someday a team in basketball is going to come back from down three to nothing. <laughs> I'm sure it will happen at some point. You're right. Yes. It's just it's not just this not particular just, series. I, Therefore, I totally agree. Your entire di- <laughs> diatribe is non-applicable. <laughs> <laughs> 129 and 0, about to be 130 and 0, right? Yeah, I think it's going to sure. be 130 and 0. Okay. Uh, we got to take one more quick break. When we come back, we will talk about the head coach in the NBA that lost his job today and a couple of the uh, jobs that have already been filled. We'll do that on the other side. Ringer NBA show today brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply for your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerNBA. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerNBA. ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerNBA. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Ringer NBA show also brought to you by Backblade. If you're a guy afraid to take your shirt off at the gym, the pool, the beach, or even in front of that special someone because your back and body hair has you looking like you're wearing a sweater, then it's time you escape your ape with the Backblade 2.0. 
The Backblade 2.0 comes with an ergonomically curved handle, giving you the full range of motion and allowing you to reach all those hard-to-reach areas. The Backblade 2.0 also comes with two of their unique Tri-Glide patented safety blades, which creates the smoothest shave in just minutes and can be used both wet or dry. I can already think about the three or four friends of mine who have their fair share of back bush and could absolutely use the back blade. Ladies, if you're tired of shaving your man's back for him, this might be the best upcoming Father's Day gift ever. Get your back blade today at backblade.com. Use the promo code SHAVE30 and save 30% on a start bundle today. That's B-A-K-Blade.com. Promo code SHAVE30. Because at Backblade, we've got your back. All right, Kev. So today was the day that we found out that Stan Van Gundy is no longer going to be a big wig for the Detroit Pistons. Um, That's rough. So he won't be on their sidelines anymore. First thing that ran through my mind was, boy, I hope he becomes a broadcaster because I think he'd be great at it. Obviously, we've heard his brother for many years be a broadcaster, <laughs> but I think Stan would be extremely good. I, I got an in idea. A broadcasting Pistons. Pistons hire Mark Jackson, then ESPN hire Stan Van Gundy. Mike Breen, Stan Van Gundy, and Jeff Van Gundy all in the booth. I'm in. Can you imagine I'm the in. Van Gundy brothers together? It would be like the best thing it. or the worst thing. No, it would be the best thing. <laughs> the absolute best thing. I'd love that. I'd love it. I would love it to happen at least once, just, just to see how it goes. That'd be fun. Yes. Van Gundy um, brothers. We can get to the failures in Detroit. I really thought that that was a good hire, and I thought that was going to work out. Let me just say that right off the bat. I'm very, I had a very high opinion of Stan Van Gundy, and as I've said many times on this show and others, I do think that it is a different skill set to roster construction and then actually coaching the team, right? We, I mean, who knows if Brad Stevens, who we laud and magnify for his ability to coach on the sidelines, who knows if you told him, like, okay, and you're in charge of the roster too, right? And you're the one drafting guys, and you're the one, like, Danny Ainge has been masterful in putting together the roster. The best. Um, And I know there's already an article on The Ringer by Shocker about uh, Stan Van Gundy's exit signals the end of the coach GM I, it, I mean, we, you and I talked about this with the Doc Rivers when he got his title taken away, and we thought that Stan Van might. You know, if you don't get your title taken away, you lose the whole job completely, which is exactly what happened. Thibodeau's kind of last man standing, right? Like, I mean, he's in Minnesota in terms of dual role, because I know that Popovich has a higher role than just head coach, but, I mean, he's always had R.C. Buford as his GM. I think Thibodeau's are la- the last one, right? Yeah. Yep, okay. he is. So yeah. It's a tough yeah. gig, man. Like you, you can't coach a team and prepare game to game and do pro uh-huh. personnel scouting, watching the rest of the league and watch all of college basketball. You, you can't travel overseas. You know who coaches love? Coaches always love guys that bust their ass. That's who they love. And they've always got higher opinions of guys that bust their ass. I'm talking about when you coach against them. Right. That's their that's the level of player personnel. I mean, Doc did that for years. I've been around 10 different coaches now over the years. They always think that the guy that, you know, gave them buckets one night or that had a really great game against them one night. They've always got much higher opinions of those guys because they were, you know, killers of their teams because you're right. 
you think you think any of these guys are going home and watching the rest of the league? Like when you were saying beyond the the draft thing, because that can be a little overrated in terms of just evaluating the best players in the draft. I don't think that you necessarily have to be the guy that's watched a hundred million hours of film yeah, being, and these being, guys, there, being there live though. Like, yeah, I know, but these, these guys also have time. I mean, you inevitably are going to have scouting departments that can, you know, hopefully you hire people you can trust. The draft is one thing and it's hard. Anyway, the draft is a hard thing to figure out um, or to get right. But I think you're dead on when you talk about the pro personnel, that's what you miss out on. Right. And because you're not watching the rest of the league, you're so focused on that night. And you also have opinions of guys on your roster that a coach's opinion of a guy is obviously going to be much different than someone that is separated from that guy. And sometimes that's for the good and sometimes that's for the bad. But sometimes coaches have to be forced to do things. And so you just trade people. Right. Um so I've I've always thought that like it's two different skill sets, almost impossible to master both. I mean, the days of Red Auerbach a hundred years ago, they're gone. I mean, you saw how shitty Phil Jackson was at it. You know what I mean? It's not easy. And Phil Jackson's like one of the greatest coaches ever by any estimation, right? And so the legacy of Stan Van at the Pistons is crap, right? <laughs> I thought it was gonna be good, Kev. Yeah, it's um, it's gonna be a tough situ- situation. Whoever gets hired, you know, for the new front office roles, or whoever gets hired as head coach, it's gonna be tough. I, I mean, they have talent in that team. To be fair, I mean, Blake Griffin's a good player, but he gets hurt all the time. And- Andre Drummond is is good. He improved a lot from the free throw line. L- Luke Kennard quietly had a really good rookie season. Granted, if you're a Pistons fan, you're you're still pissed off that they didn't take Donovan Mitchell, who worked out for them, and there was rumblings on around draft time that they were considering him heavily. Um, you're happy with Kennard, but it's not it's not Mitchell. Um, there's good talent. Reggie Bullock's a good player. It's it's again, it's almost similar to what we talked about with Toronto, except to a lesser extent. Um, they're in a spot now where they have 111 million dollars in guaranteed salary already for next season, and definitely in and definitely more um, once they get Bullock locked into his 2.5 million dollar deal. I know um, you're talking not, about not a, not a lot of flexibility. I know you're team. talking about the guys on the roster. Obviously, this year was destroyed by Reggie Jackson going out. We know that, right? I mean, they had to start Ish Smith for the majority of the season. <laughs> I don't think Drummond helps you win basketball games. Let me just go ahead and say that. I don't. He's always thrown into the talented guys and, you know, one of the better guys. And I know I know all of his numbers. I, I like He's one of those guys when I watch him, I'm like, I don't even care what the numbers say at the end of the game. Like, I never feel like it matters as much as what the stats say that I feel like it should matter, right? And he's not much. He doesn't, like, haunt you defensively. I just, I don't know. You got 20-something million dollars sunk into Andre Drummond. He'll get you his whatever million rebounds every night, but you'll lose. He's a really good player. He's almost kind of like the DeMar DeRozan of centers or something like yes. that. Like a good player, but you know he's not the guy for your team. Good player, though. Um, I mean, you can't up. throw him to him and get a bucket. Yeah, that's true. It's fair. And he's not guarding the rim for me. Solid rim protector. Whatever. He's not Clint Capella. He's not Rudy Gobert. He's solid. I guess. He's an incredible rebounder. 
He's that a, job he's, a, he, he's a good passer, good screener. That job stinks right now. Yeah, kind of. It does. <laughs> it really does. It stinks. I know. Who wants that? Unless Blake Griffin magically stays healthy, which I know it's you know that's a pipe dream. It's it's like it's like uh, beating a 129 and 0 odds to come back down 3-0. <laughs> All right, and this is the last thing I wanted to close with today. Oh, oh, I do need to mention for all my Knicks fans out there the Fizdale thing. That job has eaten up better men than Fizdale. Um, and many people know I covered Fizdale. I know Fizdale. Um, I like David Fizdale. I think he can be a perfectly fine NBA coach. Um, I don't think that, you know, from what I saw, I don't think he is – you know, obviously, if the bar, like like we say, is like Brad Stevens or whoever, Greg Popovich or whatever, I don't think that, you know, there's some of these, there's very few guys in the league that I think your win total is massively offered if they're your coach. So I'm not trying to say this as a slight. I just don't think, I, I think they've had good coaches before. Mike D'Antoni got chewed up and spit out. And I think Jeff Hornacek's a good coach and he got chewed up and spit out. And so I think most of these coaches are a function of their roster. They're going to be as good as their roster dictates they're going to be. And some of them can help you win a couple extra games. Very few of them are going to help you win a lot more games than whatever you already would. That being said, um, you know, one of the things that really went sideways in Memphis was a guy that comes from Miami who's, you know, got the chest poked out and they, you know, need a, you know, just know, like, you know, we're changing the culture here and, you know, you guys haven't accomplished shit and look at these rings and whatever else. And (laughs) look at these rings. Thanks to LeBron. (laughs) Yeah. Well, right. And you don't think veteran players thought that too. You know what I'm saying? Like they're, they're, they didn't, they didn't feel like they needed a culture change and whether they did or not. Right. They had established this grit grind that this was the Memphis mentality and all this kind of stuff. And they didn't need that culture change that. Right. It, you're, you ain't taking over a bunch of losers. Right. You're taking over guys that had accomplished something in the league and it had really good seasons. And they are mega beloved. Like these four, you know, the core four guys in Memphis, Conley, Gasol, Zebo, and Tony Allen. And so when you talk about like a. You guys, you know, basically don't, you hadn't won anything and, you know, listen to me because, because he hadn't won anything as a head coach. He'd been an assistant coach for a LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosch team. And so I just think it went over poorly with that and obviously went over crucially poorly with Gasol. And then it ended. You can pull all that shit off in New York because you do walk into a locker room of a guy, guys that have never done anything. Like you sure. do need a culture yeah. change and you do, you can say, you guys don't know anything about winning because like they really don't. My question for you is did did he become overrated after the take that for data thing? Oh, I think he's very, very media savvy. And I think the media loves him yeah. and for good reason. I, I mean, right? I, it just feels like before that ever happened, there was never this I, talk about I Fisdale, best co- one of the best coaches of basketball. Then after that, it's like everybody loved him. I mean, oh, he's, right. a, he's a really good coach. Yeah, I mean, it's just they, that seems, well, uh, yeah. they, they, listen, part of that is a function. Nobody gives a crap about Memphis. I mean, very if fair. I'm being, if I'm being honest, yes. because all very they fair. knew was yep. they took the Spurs to six games. Yeah, I mean, the, the Grizzlies fair. last year, go back and look from January on. They stunk. They stunk. And because Gasol hit a game winner and because they forced six games against San Antonio, who was a really good team, it made everybody forget. 
that was a underwhelming season by any measure, by any measure. And here's what I'll tell you. What's going to be interesting is you get, I mean, listen, I've lived there, you know, I've lived, I've lived here for the last 18 years. You get kit gloves. It's not the same. I'm aware of that. I'm not, I, I've never said that like small towns don't get it the same way or that a small town coach gets it the same way that a big town coach does. It just doesn't happen that way. All right. But like, let's just say like the Zebo thing. So Zebo's the most beloved player. He, he moves him to the bench and he says at the beginning of the season, right. Um, you know, he's going to be the best six man in the NBA. We're going to win six man of the year. He's still going to be closing out games, playing these minutes and blah, blah, blah. And, Zebo, though he was not happy about it, was a consummate professional about it, right? And then I think it was all fine until Fizz said at one of these things, he just went a little far and he said, nobody in the league's paying him to be a starter anymore. <laughs> and that's when, <laughs> and here's what I'll wrong. tell you. <laughs> well, he got $12 million uh, in the offseason. Yeah. 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 Okay. But here's what I'll say. In Memphis, it's just like Zebo. Like I, I'll give you the example. So in Memphis, your headline is Zebo okay with moving to bench or Zebo going to be super sub or whatever, right? Like that's the headline. And then there's an article written about the transition that uh, Fisdale's making and how much he's moving Jamichael Green to the starting lineup. And this is going to, you know, the Grizzlies are altering the way they play and Zebo's fine with it, whatever. In New York, that shit is like it's on the back page. You've got like the worst picture of Zach ever, like pissed off, and it says like Z bench. You know what I mean? And then, <laughs> yeah, Z-Bench, right? And then you yeah. have to deal with it. And Welcome I to don't, I don't know how he'll handle it in New York. I really don't. I really don't. We'll that, see. That job has chewed up. I mean, listen, people thought Mike D'Antoni was a piece of crap when he was there. Come on. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. I mean, and now he's lauded for his genius. But but you know what? In in many ways, like it almost doesn't matter, right? It's like it's about whether what Kristaps Porzingis turns into. It's about Porzingis staying healthy and continuing to grow. That that's really like the key to everything, no matter who the coach is. Yeah, and the last thing I want to just mention to you because the draft lottery is going to be next Tuesday night. Hell yeah, baby! It is a week from when. Most people are listening to this. I got one little gripe, okay? And it's not towards you. Okay, cool. It's not towards you. I appreciate that, Chris. That means a lot. So you know how many times I complained about these mock drafts? Yeah. And I've called them mockery drafts, and I've said, hey. They all are right now. (laughs) Well, and we talk about the group think that goes along with all of this, right? Okay. So I've been keeping up daily with uh, ESPN puts out their, like, top 100 prospects, right? And I'm not doing this to slander anybody. I'm just saying this is this is the way stuff is, and I find it ridiculous. So you know I'm a big Colin Sexton fan, right? Yes, you love Colin Sexton. I love him. A week ago, Colin Sexton was like 14th, the 14th best prospect, right? You look it up today, he's nine. So what the fuck happened in the last week? Did, did I miss Alabama games that took place? <laughs> Marvin Bagley moved back up to like three. Like guys are moving around in this prospect list that's going on and people are, if you want to present it as a mock draft and here's what I think these teams are going to do, but in terms of like ranking players and these are the best players, how in the hell can draft 
prospect lists change now. As far as I know, Doncic is the only one that you should be able to move up and down. But, like, what did Colin Sexton do? He was the 14th best prospect last week, and now he's the ninth. And Marvin Bagley was the fifth best prospect, and now he's the third? Like, what? So I think what is happening? I th- so I think with DX, with Draft Express, I think what their list is is essentially a, a an approximate consensus based off feedback from NBA executives. I believe that's what it is more so than actually Jonathan Gavoni's actual list. I think I think that's what ESPN does. That's what they did with Chad Ford, and I think that's what it is now, where it's it's approximately the top one hundred based on feedback from NBA executives. So if if there's more feedback, if there's more information that hey, Colin Sexton is a guy that's more likely to be in this range, then you bump him up. I, I I honestly don't have much of an issue with it at all. Like Marvin Bagley on my personal board, I have him five right now. The odds are when we do the update and the Ringers 2018 NBA draft guide next week, when we're going to expand to 60 players, odds are I might bump him down to six. It, it's just a little personal change. Where let me let me just let me just add this too, Chris. It, on DX, I think that's their board for me right now. A lot of these players are they don't look as much at the rankings as much as the range, right? So if a guy is nine and he's ahead of a guy at ten, he might also might not be that much different than the guy at thirteen. It's about so what getting, I'm saying is, is anybody just thing. giving their own opinion on this stuff, or is it all just I, am, I talked to some certain GM I don't and know. he told me that this guy's good, and so now all of a sudden. You know, uh, Gilgis Alexander was 19th, but now he's the 12th best prospect. I can't speak for anybody else, but I'm pretty sure that's what Ford did, and I'm pretty sure that's what ESPN does, where it's just based on feedback from any executives. And look, Chris, like we're at the point right now with the draft where there's a lot of fluidity. It it never gets locked in until around June, mid-June. Like, look, with big boards, there's a difference between ones based on feedback from executives, and then there's a difference between the ones that are based on your own personal rankings. That's what that's what mine are on, on the ringer. Right. That's what well, charts are. Let me help Dean's you out. Are. Go put. Go ahead and get Bagley up at number one or number two no. and go get no. Colin Sexton in the top seven. Trust me. Trust me. I'm not <laughs> – Trust me. I'm probably going to have Wendell Carter ahead of Marvin Bagley but, when it's all said oh, and done. Oh, that's fucking stupid. No, it's not. What are you talking about? <laughs> what? And I don't know for sure, man, because guess what? There's a lot more There's a lot more to learn about these Just guys. Just trust me. Look, the college season ended in March but it, for a lot of them, but it doesn't mean more can change between then and June. How? Because what? players train, you learn more things. You learn about potential no, injury you just concerns. Talk to people that tell concerns. you different stuff. Your opinion should not be able to no, change drastically. That, look, that's why you need to be cautious about some of the information you're receiving about certain guys. But you can also see progress. Like if a guy's changing their shooting mechanics and like, whoa, like totally overhauls his shot, or he's working on a weakness and turning it into a strength, seeing a workout with your own eyeballs, that's the type of stuff that can change your opinion on a guy or, or or confirm your opinion on a guy for good for good or bad. Things change, dude, a lot between end of the season and and, and the draft. They just do. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Don't, look, here's the thing. Don't pay attention to the rankings too much until June. That's all I have to say. You know, I already especially don't pay attention to don't pay attention to mock drafts until like two. Actually, I shouldn't say that because when we put out mock drafts on the ringer, it's like saying don't look at it. It's like, but really, mock drafts don't have a lot of value until like a day or two before the draft. All right. Well, here's listen. I've I've complained about this so much. Right. I said I'm going to do my own. 
I'm gonna say yeah, I don't I care what it. Hey, I, I don't care it. what any of these mock yeah. drafts say. Here's what I'm telling you are the best guys. Here's the guys I'd put my neck out for. Here's the guys I'd be scared of. Here's the guy, right? And I'll just break them into it. I actually, uh, and I have spoken to uh, Chris Ryan, and I believe I'm going to do this for the ringer. So you wait. You just wait, Kevin. You just wait. Because I do talk a lot of trash about this whole draft stuff and the process mm, and all this yeah, group yeah. think and everything yeah. else. But, hey, wait till Elverno Diablo becomes a writer. <laughs> I'm coming for your yeah, neck. Yeah, I'm coming for your yeah, neck. There, there's two. There's two draft resources to look at. <laughs> One NBA Draft dot dot com. Check out the Ringer's 2018 NBA Draft Guide. Next week we're updating our big board and we're expanding with 30 more of my draft profiles. Got more stuff coming out as well. Team needs pages. It's gonna be dope. And then the second thing is Chris Vernon's draft rankings. No, I, I'm not doing things. anything. I'm not doing anything until after the lottery is. Oh, uh, I know, I know. Yeah, settled. Of course. Yeah, it's right. not out yet. Oh. You're, you're, you're gonna. It's like Mike Mayock doesn't drop his white, top 100 in the NFL until close to the draft. It's like everybody's anticipating it. That's what. That's what your list is, Chris. You're gonna make people wait. Make them beg for it. Oh, all I'm saying is, I just want somebody to like have like. I get the mocks, like the, the, the interest in the mocks is being right. Okay. And so you can gather information. You could try to figure out who that guy's, who that team's going to take. But what happens is all of these are just a collection of what whoever executives willing to run their mouth. And then everybody just copies off each other because all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. guys are moving up and down. And then by the end, everybody's got the same damn lottery. And we know that a couple of the guys out of the top five are going to be bad and that this guy's. Uh, and so I get that like Daniel Jeremiah of the NFL Network switches his mock at the last day to put Baker Mayfield number one. Now, he doesn't think that Baker Mayfield's a number one quarterback, right? That's the difference between mock drafts and big boards. A big board should be probably your own personal opinion. I prefer when a big board's that way. I'd love to know when people have their own personal opinions out there. My my issue is when people copy the big boards more than like who can I don't who cares about mock drafts? Mock drafts are irrelevant until the day of the draft. They are, right, I'm just saying, listen, clickbait. Man. All hey, of them. <laughs> I would try to hey, I would try to I I, I said I was gonna try to help you. I'm done helping you. Don't move Bagley and Sexton up, and then I'll have them in my thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like there's some draft sites out there who who like they look at the 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 accuracy of rankings, you know, from the prior year's drafts, and we have to make sure yours gets on that list. Do like a top, do like a top sixty or something like that. No, no, just no, no. no. I'm not trying to be accurate. You I'm just said you're gonna have a more accurate list than me. Oh, in terms of the best players. Yeah. Oh, well, that then then that means you have an accurate list then. No, I don't care if Phoenix is stupid and takes eight and number no, one. No, it's not about that. I'm not. I'm talking about that, the big I ain't board. trying to be right I, on I'm, that. I'm not, I don't, who cares? I don't care about that either. I'm talking about projecting oh. the players ahead. Oh, I put my head on a guillotine that Marvin Bagley's better than DeAndre Ayton. Oh, you, well, your head's falling off, Chris. No, it's not either. <laughs> no, it's not either. It's ro- rolling down the street. No. You, you'll see all these mocks yeah. will move okay, around. Yeah, by yeah, the yeah. end, it'll yeah. probably be it'll probably be Bagley yeah. 1, Sexton 2 by yeah, the end knows? of this. It could. It could. Who knows? <laughs> all right, Kev. It's always a pleasure. These late nights ones are fun. Yeah, and by good. the way, though we crapped on them a lot, shout out to the Raptors for getting bombed yeah. so badly that oh. we were able to record early. Oh, man. <laughs> What happened? Yeah, we recorded earlier and then we still went late. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. All right. (laughs) 
Go get some dinner. Yeah, yeah thank you, Chris. Have a good night. It's going to do it for another Ringer NBA show. If you think what you're hearing, go give us a rating and review on iTunes, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>